is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clote, and here's what's coming up. It's hard to imagine uh, where they will go from here and how they will find jobs and when they will be able to return and what their homes will be like when they return. That was Barton Ballard, a volunteer from Austin, Texas, who is in Poland to help refugees fleeing from Ukraine. And all this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The death toll from yesterday's suicide bombings on a local government headquarters and a hospital vicinity in Somalia's central town of Beledouin has risen to 30, with at least 30 more others injured, according to security officials. Beledouin, the provincial capital of the Hiran region, is around 300 kilometers or 186 miles north of Mogadishu. A member of Somalia's parliamentary election candidate, Amina Mohammed, a vocal critic of the government, was among the dead. Mohammed was also a member of the 10th Parliament of Somalia, whose constitutional mandate ended on December 27, 2020, and she was in the city to defend her seat. Colonel Ali Abdul, Beledouin chief of police, said the first attack by a man with a suicide vest killed at least 15 people at the local government headquarters and an explosive-laden vehicle near the capital injured people who gathered to help the wounded. Earlier before the attacks in Beledouin, Somali soldiers battled with armed attackers near Mogadishu's heavily guarded international airport compound where the United States has its embassy. Police spokesman Major Abdi Fatah Aden told VOA Somali that at least six people were killed, which include a Somali national and five foreigners. Ukrainian refugees are still arriving in Poland. Many are coming through the borders and staying in camps before boarding buses and trains for other destinations. Volunteers help them with some basic needs. Mary Mgawi has our story. We are here at the center of Kozoa Delina. This is the center, refugee center, that the refugees have been taken from the border to here. And when they get registered, once they finish, they are taking them to another location to the city to migrate to another community. And right here, as you can see, the security is very high. We are not allowed to get inside because of their privacy. But we were told there is women and children inside there are resting. And not only the buses which are taking the refugees, but you will see good Samaritans are walking around here ready to take the refugees from Ukraine. Kochova camp, just a few kilometers from the Ukrainian-Polish border, is a transit point for refugees from Ukraine. As soon as they step out of the buses, they are greeted by volunteers who provide them with food, water, and other necessities. Besides Polish volunteers, there are also organizations and individuals from all over the world who have come to assist the refugees. Two volunteers from Germany are among those who have come to Poland, bringing along contributions from people in their hometown. I was organizing the thing, so we collected with Facebook in the home city, and within a few hours, over 100 people came over and gave us a lot of food, a lot of clothes, and also a little bit of donations. And with this money, we can be here. Like, we're not getting paid, we just use it for the fuel. It's volunteering. But it's nice, because we have so much at home. So, And we just have it because, yeah, because we took so much from Africa, we took so much from all the colonized countries. So we have to give something back. There are buses transporting people from Kochova refugee camp to the main train station in Pshemishel. This train station is a major transit point for refugees. From here, they board trains to other cities in Poland and even to other neighboring countries. Daria, a music theory teacher from Ukraine, 
is waiting with her two sons for a train to Sweden. She wanted to stay in Ukraine and help, but says she had to think about the safety of her sons. My husband is in Ukraine. He stay in Ukraine, protect his country. We decided to leave because I worry about their lives, you know. I don't think about my life, life about myself. I have a kid, so I have to think about them, how to pro- protect them, you know. There are many volunteers at the train station. Some are providing accommodation for women and children while they wait. Others are saving warm meals at the platform. Sasha came with her family from Austin, Texas, as soon as she heard about the situation at the borders. I just came with my family to volunteer and help out anywhere I can. My family speaks Russian, and so we felt like we were like uniquely qualified to come because we can translate. Many volunteers have come on their own to help in whatever way they can. It's hard to imagine uh, where they will go from here and how they will find jobs and when they will be able to return and what their homes will be like when they return. And so it seems like a problem that, that we can look at right now, but it's still going to be a problem for most of these people in a few years. As she waits for the train, Daria expresses the pain she feels from what is happening to her country. It feels horrible, horrible, because uh, one uh, crazy guy came to my home and destroyed everything. Destroy somebody's houses and destroy somebody's life, you know. It's horrible feelings. But still, she has hoped that one day she'll be able to return to her home. Mary Mgawe, VOA News, Michel, Poland. A report by the South Africa-based African Energy Chamber says Nigeria has the potential to improve its energy exports to Europe and help address anticipated crude oil and natural gas shortages. Mike Mbonye reports from Lagos. The report says... Nigeria's annual crude oil production is expected to increase to 1.46 million barrels per day in 2022. The country's production level went down in 2021 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The study says that Nigeria could benefit from energy exports to Europe if the European Union bans crude oil imports from Russia and the Russian government retaliates by stopping gas supplies. The report also said that Nigeria's gas production capacity in 2022 will place the country among the top three producers in Africa and in a good position to meet Europe's demands. Nigeria has an estimated gas reserve of 209 trillion cubic feet and will produce 1,800 billion cubic feet in 2022, up from 1,450 cubic billion feet last year. Surebi Akene is an oil and gas expert and chairman of the Board of Trustees for the Center for Environmental Preservation and Development, a non-governmental organization in Yenagua, Bayesa State. He agrees that Nigeria could benefit from the global rise in oil prices, but expressed doubts about the accuracy of the amount of oil announced by traders and regulators. Some have charged they manipulate quantity for their own benefit. And I, while I don't know the actual uh, production figures of Nigeria, I can say that based on the oil fields we have, if we are producing at even 70% capacity, we will go a long way. Sometimes ago, 
It was on record that Nigeria was the sixth largest oil producing nation in the world. And in that case, we go a long way. Uh, the problem is uh, insincerity of the government and the multinational oil companies producing. Because I can tell you that there is no sincerity from anybody regulation agencies and the multinationals. Akene says environmental challenges might affect Nigeria's quest to meet the energy needs of European Union countries. For the environmental challenges, so long as this Nigerian government is concerned and the multinationals, they don't value the lives of the individuals, inhabitants in these oil producing areas. You can imagine from that 58, they started producing oil till today. Most of the pipes have not been changed. They expired leases, expired pipes, and they got ruptured every now and then. Alagoa Morris is the project officer and head of Environmental Rights Action, a non-governmental organization. He says, apart from oil theft and other environmental factors, vandalism is another factor that can affect Nigeria's drive to supply energy needs to Europe. We have also uh, investigated and have come to realize that some oil company staff and contractors have also been involved, been uh, implicated in the area of vandalism. They sponsor some youths, some community persons to vandalize the oil facilities so as to get fronts who will go in as contractors to repair the vandalized equipment to also go in for cleanup or remediation, which they, do, they never used to do well. Alagoa says there should be sincerity by all stakeholders in the oil and gas sectors to make Nigeria have advantage as a potential supplier to Europe. This is Mike Mbonye for VOA News in Lagos. Spain has told Algeria it supports Morocco's proposal to grant some autonomy to the Western Sahara, calling it the most serious, realistic and credible initiative for resolving the decades-long dispute. William Lawrence, professor of political science and international relations, explained Spain's new position to VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shinawi. At first, it confused a lot of people because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine causing a gas crisis in Europe, and Spain desperately needs Algerian gas to replace Russian gas, and it was turning towards Morocco and angering Algeria, so it didn't really make sense. But following the U.S. recognition of uh, Morocco's claims at the end of the Trump administration, the the first country in the world to recognize Morocco's claims, and the decision of Germany to join France in backing the Moroccan autonomy plan, which is a softer position, the Spanish government has followed Germany and decided to make up with Morocco following a year-long diplomatic dispute caused by Spain treating the leader of the Polisario, the Western Saharan military grouping, and also the head of their state in exile during the pandemic. And Morocco caused a big diplomatic ruckus over that treatment and took a lot of actions, including allowing 8,000 migrants to storm the Spanish enclave of Sibta, creating a migration crisis. So basically, to simplify things, Spain seems to be choosing its concerns over migration over its concerns over energy. 
which still confuses some people, but it's clear that they're, you know, leaning in the direction of having a good relationship with Morocco to get its borders more secure rather than a better relationship with Algeria to swap out the gas. And most analysts are saying Algeria is going to sell them the gas anyway. Now, it was interesting what Spain said. They said, we're seeing this as the most serious, realistic, incredible plan, but there's really no other plan right now on the table other than the original settlement plan from 1991, the ceasefire agreement, which was supposed to lead to a, a referendum. The problem there is that the Moroccan plan has never really been that serious or credible because there hasn't been a serious negotiation since 2007. And it would be realistic if it was a plan that the Sahrawis, the Saharans, might accept. But the plan was developed unilaterally, and there's been no negotiation. And so, you know, even though it is the most credible plan out there, no one's really put forward a plan that takes into account the Saharan position, the Algerian position, uh, the African Union position. We're just not there right now. So what we're getting is improved relationships between Spain and Morocco, worsening relationships between Spain and Algeria, and probably a worsening relationship between Spain and the African Union as well. Spain's new position angered Algeria, one of Spain's main gas suppliers. Algeria, which is considered the main supporter of the Sahrawi people of the Polisario Front, summoned its ambassador to Spain in response to Madrid's position, which Algiers described as unexpected inversion. How would Spain's position impact the relations with Algeria? Well, they've gone from pretty good to quite bad instantaneously. Spain said that it informed the Algerian government in advance. The Algerians said they were not informed and that they were completely stunned by the move. And interestingly, the main right-wing party in Spain was angry at the left-wing party that made this move because they hadn't been informed. And the left-wing partners, the government partner, Power, of the government of power in Spain also hadn't been informed, which has created a schism within that party on the left and the risk of a political coalition falling apart. So will this go beyond just recalling a, an ambassador? Uh, we don't know yet. Is it a purely symbolic move? No, it's more than that. There, there are implications for the diplomacy of Western Sahara. But is there a legal effect? No. Just like the U.S. recognition had no legal effect, the Spanish position has no legal effect because ultimately the deal on Western Sahara is going to have to be negotiated at the U.N. and doesn't just result from uh, positions that, that the countries take. That was William Lawrence, Professor of Political Science and International Relations, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed El Shinawi. For one week, Rwanda is hosting a delegation of the South Sudan People's Defense Force who are on a learning visit to witness the role of women in conflict resolution and development. South Sudan is a member of the East African community and Rwanda has troops in the UN's peacekeeping mission in Juba. Eugene Uwimana has more details from Rwanda's capital, Kigali. It's a learning experience. For South Sudan, a country that has known a civil war for more than seven years, there's no better way of rebuilding itself than putting women at the helm. Brigadier General David Lokonga Moses is a member of the delegation now in Chigali. The purpose of our visit to Rwanda is very, very important. That is an exchanging learning uh, program to come and share uh, experiences. You noted that the mainstream women involvement in the army in the participation of, you know, 
creating a, a kind of development in the country. We discovered here that uh, it has been very encouraged that in, in, this is an ideal that Rwanda is one of the countries we can learn from each other. The 11 member delegation from South Sudan includes five women. They'll be meeting with officials from Rwanda's Ministry of Gender and Family Promotion and with the Minister of Defense. Among the topics, how women are recruited and deployed by the military, their role in post conflict reconciliation, and a look at the Rwandan Military Academy and Peace Academy. They also learn about the Rwanda's national gender policy used to include women in national decision making. Already, the delegation has visited the Chigali Genocide Memorial to learn about the role of women in stopping the 1994 mass murders of Tutsi and moderate Hutu and the participation of women in rebuilding the country. They also toured the campaign against the genocide in the museum at the Parliament building. The museum includes photos and testimonies that show the role of women soldiers of the Rwanda Patriotic Front who helped stop the killings and rebuild the country. Lieutenant Colonel Stella Uineza is an officer of Rwanda Defense Force. She has served in the United Nations peacekeeping mission in South Sudan and also with the United Nations mission in Darfur, Sudan between 2011 and 2012. She welcomed her South Sudanese colleagues and stressed the importance of women sharing their experiences. What have been done from recruitment, we have a, a large number of young girls joining RDF whether at cadet courses or at basic training, they have something to learn from us, but also we can also learn from them. We, we all have experiences to share and to learn from each other and to continue in this area of women empowerment. Janete Baisenye is Rwanda's Minister of Gender and Family Promotion. She says that discussions on mainstreaming gender insecurity and conflict resolution help women tackle common problems they are still facing. We know that uh, the challenges that Rwanda, Rwandan families, women and girls in Rwanda are facing are almost similar with the issues that girls in other countries, whether in Africa or outside Africa, hearing from what they, uh, they are doing at their, uh, at their level, can inform uh, what we could do to deal with the remaining challenges we might, face, uh, we might be facing. Today, more than 5,000 Guadalajan troops, police and experts are deployed in UN peacekeeping missions, including MINUSCA in the Central African Republic and the United Nations mission in South Sudan, or UNMIS. In June 2018, 85 women and 75 men were deployed by the Rwanda National Police for a peacekeeping mission under UNMIS. Officials say the Rwandan military continues to recruit more women each year, an achievement that we highlight for their colleagues in this week's delegation from South Sudan. Ejen Wimana for VOA News, Chigali, Rwanda. Since the war in Ukraine began a month ago, Russian officials in South Africa have been eager to justify President Vladimir Putin's invasion. Moscow's men and women in Africa's second largest economy have told the government and citizens that the Kremlin was left with no choice but to launch what they call a special operation in neighboring Ukraine. Their reasons include the supposed security threat that Kyiv would present to Moscow if it were to join NATO. Darren Taylor reports. Over the past few weeks, Russian diplomats in Pretoria have had almost free reign to present their views about the war to South Africans. 
President Cyril Ramaphosa's government, while emphasizing its neutrality, has met with Moscow's representatives while ignoring those of Ukraine. But slowly but surely, Russia's oft-stated good reasons for Putin's attack, such as to denazify Ukraine, are being opposed in South Africa. The Kremlin wants to have a significant say not only over Ukrainian foreign policy, but also domestic policy. And the Kremlin was concerned that Ukraine was slipping out of Moscow's orbit. And that was happening. Stephen Pfeiffer, former United States ambassador to Ukraine, is one of the voices giving South Africans what they say are the real reasons for Moscow's invasion. Nothing has done more than Russian policy over the past eight years, the seizure of Crimea, Russian support for the conflict in Donbass to push Ukraine away from Russia and towards the West. Pfeiffer, speaking during a University of Johannesburg webinar broadcast on national TV, said Russian domestic politics also sparked Putin's decision to invade. The Kremlin fears a Western-oriented, democratic, and economically successful Ukraine because that kind of Ukraine would cause Russian citizens to ask why they can't have the same political voice and democratic rights that Ukrainians have, which they do not have in Russia. He asserts one primary objective of the attack on Ukraine is to ensure the survival of the Putin regime. Pfeiffer says Moscow could have avoided war. He points out that the Russian government presented two draft treaties supposedly aimed at exactly this in December. In fact, there were reactions from both the United States and NATO say, look, we can talk about arms control measures, risk reduction measures, confidence and security building measures, transparency measures, things that we know how to do and the Russians know how to do. We did these in the 1980s, we did these in the 1990s, and they could lead to a genuine improvement in European security, including for Russia. But there was simply no interest on the Russian side in engaging. Instead, says Pfeiffer, Moscow started insisting that NATO renounce any future plans to admit new member states, specifically Ukraine, and withdraw all NATO forces in Eastern Europe. He adds that Putin knew NATO would reject these demands, so now he's stuck with a war of choice. It is a wide-scale war. The goal there clearly was to take Kyiv and depose the government there. And it's not going well because the Russian government, the Kremlin, miscalculated. Uh, the Russian military has underperformed, and they're finding that the Ukrainians, who I think see this as an existential conflict, they see both their democracy and their vision to become a normal European state at stake, and they're fighting with great tenacity and determination. Pfeiffer says Putin seems just as determined not to back down and to gain military victory, no matter the cost. But that victory remains far from certain. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. In Nigeria, former Vice President Atiku Abubakar announced today that he will run for president in next February's elections. In remarks to supporters in Abuja, the 75-year-old businessman compared Nigeria under the ruling All-Progressive Congress Party to a sinking ship, beset by double-digit inflation and a war against the Boko Haram terrorist group. He said in the past few years, unemployment has increased from 9% to 33% and inflation from single digits to 16%. 
Abu Bakar says he will boost growth with lower taxes on small businesses and low-income earners and reduce imports to increase the value of the Naira. He will mechanize farming and develop the country's agricultural value chain and also strengthen health care. More than 40% of Nigeria's 206 million people live in poverty. This is the sixth time Abu Bakar has run for president. He served as vice president from 1999 to 2007. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clotty in Washington. For all latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the voice of America. brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music from bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, afrobeat to ndombolo and makosa to kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 0905 